0: Do do, do 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 kiss my leg hello and welcome to death of a thousand cuts making you an awesome writer one cut at a time i'm called tim clare and each episode i'll be popping in my jeweler's eyepiece the technical term for which is a loop thank you very much readers digest reverse dictionary holding novice authors first pages up to the light and turning them thoughtfully while making a series of appraising tuts This week I've been called up for jury service, which I'm not allowed to talk about. But speaking generally, I'd like, if I may, to do that thing vicars always do in their sermons, you know, where they hoover up their week's experiences, then tangentially relate them to some part of the Bible, so I'll be like, now that spring is in the air, I enjoy walking along the towpath near our village. Recently, I put a call in the parish newsletter to see if I could get some volunteers to help clear up the dog mess that's been accumulating. And that's a bit like the second epistle of Paul the Apostle to Thessalonians. See? Immediately relatable. Although apparently I can't pronounce the word Thessalonians. Sorry, Thessalonians. For me, the writing process sometimes has the adversarial quality of a court of law. (laughs) See how I worked it in? One version of you is trying to encourage the witness to tell their story, is trying to coax the details out of them, is trying to create a clear picture of the facts and feelings. The other version is stepping in to go, no, That's bollocks, isn't it? They're a handbrake, a sceptical voice. They're interjecting to say stop. That's irrelevant. Stop. You're exaggerating. Stop. It didn't happen that stupid way. It happened this way. It complicates. It enriches. In Buddhism, I've heard it said that one needs three things. Great faith, great doubt and great perseverance. And that's the way it is with writing need the confidence that your story is wonderful and needs telling, the self-awareness to check how well you're achieving that, and the determination to keep going despite the fact that most of the time you'll fall short of your goals. This podcast is very good at cross-examination, I like to think. It's very good at poking holes in a witness's story. But remember, you need balance. Please, please, please don't just listen to this and get very good at ripping your own work apart. Write Every week, even if it's only a five minute session per day or one 20 minute session per week. It's great to be sceptical about your work, but don't forget to rejoice in it. If you do, you'll never write. The censorious editor in your head will get too strong and you'll never get any work out. If you haven't been doing as much writing as you'd like, I'm sure that's true of you, right? None of us have, and you're listening to this and feeling guilty, don't worry. Start small. Just promise yourself that today you're going to do 10 minutes. And when you're finished, sometime before you go to bed, set a timer, get it done. That's it. I promise you it will help. And speaking of getting it done, we really should get on with this week's first page. If you'd like to read along, there's the full text of this first page in the show notes on my website, timclairepoet.co.uk. Listen to the end of the podcast for details of how to submit your own work to the show. I need submissions. OK, this piece is called The Tale of the Chocolate City and it's by Ollie. Chocolate City had run out of chocolate. Not just dark chocolate, which any right-minded citizen of Chocolate City knew was only really for older people who had sensitive teeth, but also milk chocolate and white chocolate. It had run out of the chocolate that went in ice cream, in sweets, on pancakes, and even the mint chocolate that rich and refined people like to dish out at the end of fancy dinner parties. It was a catastrophe. "'It is a catastrophe,' wailed a short, stumpy-looking man, clad in the flowing red robe of the chocolatiers. A stern-looking colleague, with a dark, neatly trimmed beard and deeply set green eyes, sat listening distractedly just across the fireplace. He was taller and somewhat firmer-looking than the man sprouting forth with fire and brimstone about the future of their beloved city. The hearth between them burned with the last breaths of a long night.' They'd been running over the problem for days now and have come to no conclusion. The sterner man cleared his throat thoughtfully, uncrossed his legs and leant forward to speak. Well, alchemy always states, I don't give a damn what your crazy magic states, you can't just make chocolate from thin air, you've been trying for thirty years, ever since you were kicked out of the academy for mixing fruit and nut with chocolate, I mean, the sheer audacity. Gerald knew he had gone too far then. Okay, first line. Chocolate City had run out of chocolate. So, we could ease into this slowly, like an elderly colonel oofing the pale bulk of his ageing body into a mustard bath, but rather I'd prefer to get straight to the nub of it. Chocolate City is a shit name for a city. Fantastic piece of gallows humour for parents of a toddler with explosive diarrhoea. How are the residents of Chocolate City this morning? Restless, my lord. They have burst our defences and run into the streets... By which I mean the blue elephant blanket. But for a city, no. Now, you may plead genre, you may say, Look, Tim, we have in this first sentence a clear conflict and a strong sense of tone. This is going to be a fairy tale or farce, something light and broad. It makes a promise to the reader. Surely you're not asking for gritty verisimilitude in a funny, fluffy yarn about chocolate makers. And no, I'm not. It's not even unrealistic. Lots of American towns have unimaginative names related to their primary industry. Steelton, for example. Thank you, Wikipedia. Realism isn't the problem. Or maybe it is. Maybe the problem is that your name is too believable in its utterly mundane shitness. I mean, Chocolate City. By what nebulous and arcane process did you arrive at such a name? It's a city that produces chocolate, and you were like, Chocolate City, boom, done. Creative process, donezo. Now, Ollie, I'm sure you're a diligent and lovely person who works very hard, and even if you don't work very hard sometimes, you're still intrinsically valuable. That is not in question. But this name, this fucking name, it is lazy and shit. It hangs from the first line of your story like a baleful leper's bell, clanging out warnings to any foolish enough to venture further. Listen, can you make out words in its fetid, mournful peal? "'Turn back, turn back. "'This author couldn't be bothered to think of a name for the setting "'that wasn't just a relevant noun and the word city. "'What makes you think they'll treat the rest of their world better?' "'Oh, Bells, they're so catty.' But within their tintinnabulations, powerful home truths oft lie, Ollie, You want your story to capture our imaginations, right? You want it to be exciting and colourful and larger than life. Don't phone it in on the first line, then. What if they'd called it The Big Laser instead of The Death Star? Or Magic School instead of Hogwarts? Or The Mass of Moaning Temporally Sentient Corpses instead of Twitter? I know you're trying to set up an existential crisis for Chocolate City that the bluntness is supposed to be both humorous and arresting but it's such a crap obvious name that these minor gains come at a terrible terrible cost. Not just dark chocolate which any right-minded citizen of Chocolate City knew was only really for older people who had sensitive teeth but also milk chocolate and white chocolate. Is dark chocolate softer? What do you mean sensitive teeth? Is it cold? What the fuck is this narrator on about? Two sentences into a story about chocolate and already I'm having doubts that you know what chocolate is. Chocolate melts in the mouth. You don't have to chew it and it's generally served at room temperature so it doesn't hurt sensitive teeth. So... What the flip is going on? And why qualify the previous statement by listing subcategories? This adds nothing. It's like writing, Jeff had no eggs. He had no eggs from geese, no eggs from hens, no eggs from lizards. We know, we understand categories and deductive reasoning. It had run out of the chocolate that went in ice cream, in sweets, on pancakes, and even the mint chocolate that rich and refined people liked to dish out at the end of fancy dinner parties. We know these aren't even good or interesting types of chocolate. They don't make me think you've done any research. They're just a trolley dash of the most obvious uses for chocolate. I know you're listing all these things for rhetorical effect. You're trying to be all storybooky because in storybooks the narrator digresses and has certain cadences and that's all part of the wonderful spell they weave. But you can't just list any old shit and expect us to care. This isn't evocative, idiosyncratic or interesting. Literally no reader will be surprised or amused by this list. They could probably guess it if I just asked them to suggest some uses for chocolate in puddings. Just like they could have come up with Chocolate City. What value are you adding, Ollie? Why should someone pay you for the privilege of looking at how you've arranged a bunch of words which are all communally owned? It was... A catastrophe. Listeners can't see, but you've closed that sentence with a four-dot ellipsis. It was a catastrophe, dot, 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 dot. One, three dots for an ellipsis, please. Two, we already have a way to indicate pauses. It's called a full stop. Using three or four doesn't add drama. It doesn't make your story portentous and rich with anticipation. It makes the narrator sound like a desperate, solicitous dad trying to convince teenagers that the country walk he's about to take them on will be open quotes, completely sick, close quotes. It is a catastrophe, wailed a short, stumpy-looking man, clad in the flowing red robe of the chocolatiers. I actually quite like the repetition of it is a catastrophe. That's a nice beat, mildly amusing, a clean transition from this general diagnosis of our starting state into the narrative present. The narrative present is where all the best stuff happens, remember that. A short, stumpy-looking man, Is he stumpy or just stumpy looking? I don't understand the distinction. He's apparently short, but not really. Why are you hedging like this? It's not a court of law. He won't sue you for defamation. You're allowed to call him stumpy. Commit to it. I think a flowing red robe is, again, and sorry if it sounds like I'm getting it, you, Ollie. I'm, I'm really not. We're just being robust. I make all of these mistakes myself. A flowing red robe is It's a very obvious bit of uniform. It's also manifestly impractical as a garment for cooking hot, sloppy, brown stuff. But come on, can you be more specific here, more interesting? Was this just the first uniform that came to mind or did you actually stop and really think about it? Because this is the thing, when you're writing, it's not enough to just hammer down whatever the first item is that comes to mind. You're not a stenographer of the muse. Don't believe any of that self mythologizing divinely inspired bollocks. If you just sit there and flow, you're going to be largely reproducing cliches drawn from every film and TV show you've ever seen. You need to stop interrogate your work, properly picture the scene, bring it into sharp focus in your mind's eye. Then you need to edit the bits that were exactly what someone else would expect. What would be surprising in this scene? For example, maybe the chocolatiers, again, not a terribly inspiring or original name, but we're just going to park that for now. But look, maybe they do wear incredibly impractical robes of office. That would be great. But then you need to properly lean into that. We need some lavish description. We need a sense of how these clothes impede their movement through the dialogue beats. Or maybe you want to research actual chocolate making to devise some uniform that's appropriate for your universe's tech level and culture. Either option would be great. Just don't toss this bit away. Every bit of world building is not an onerous duty, but an opportunity. A stern looking colleague with a dark, neatly trimmed beard and deeply set green eyes sat listening distractedly. Just across the fireplace. So stern looking makes more sense here than stumpy looking in the sentence before because it's an appraisal of mood rather than a physical attribute. But still, two X lookings in two sentences and I see a third coming up on the horizon. What's wrong with committing to stern? A dark, neatly trimmed beard is fine. Clear, flows nicely. Ditto, deeply set green eyes. Which may be tickling cliche but hasn't quite coaxed a laugh out of it yet. So you're all right. Sat listening distractedly, almost an oxymoron. I know distracted can have the related meaning of worried rather than simply having one's attention diverted, and I, I take it that that's what you mean here. But maybe you should change it to something like anxiously, nervously or whatever. Uh, Finally, don't close the line with just across the fireplace. Fireplace is the least interesting part of that sentence. Always try to end your sentence with the most interesting part. Neatly trimmed beard is pretty cool. Green eyes are quite interesting. Sat listening distractedly has some kind of character and plot relevance. Just across the fireplace is a bit of positional housekeeping. Don't use that. The hearth between them burned with the last breaths of a long night. They had been running over the problem for days now and had come to no conclusion. Pretty good writing, Ollie. Last breaths is an odd metaphor, not especially evocative of fires, but the rest of it is clear, flows nicely and clarifies the problem. The sterner man cleared his throat thoughtfully, uncrossed his legs and leant forward to speak. This is a lovely beat. I changed the comparative sterner to stern. But aside from that, a very visual, expertly rendered lead into the dialogue. Well, alchemy always states, I don't give a damn what your crazy magic states. You can't just make chocolate from thin air. You've been trying for 30 years, ever since you were kicked out of the academy for mixing fruit and nut with chocolate. So there's no need for always here. You wouldn't say the Bible always says or science always tells us. The response is rather glutted with exposition. I should say, before I get to that, we still haven't been told the reason for the chocolate shortage. Have they run out of some key ingredient? Have the machines all broken? Is there a worker's strike? And if, say, there's no cocoa, then why? Is an incipient war causing a blockade of their borders? Has a terrible famine struck down this year's crop? I dare say... You haven't thought about it, but one of the reasons writing deserves this kind of steeping and refining is the answers can help power your story. If there's an embargo, for example, why that suggests a whole larger political conflict, maybe a threat that builds throughout the story. Will things come to all out war? Your world immediately feels bigger, more real. Now, back to the exposition glut. You've been trying for thirty years, ever since you were kicked out of the academy for mixing fruit and nut with chocolate. Why is he telling his colleague information? That they both know. The answer, of course, is to tee up a joke for the reader. You're sacrificing the integrity of your world for humour and also to give us a little bit of background into this character. It's not that the fruit and nut gag is too silly, it's a bit broad, but if that's the tone you want to strike, you're allowed. It's just that the character has no reason to directly explain it. He might darkly allude to the fruit and nut incident, but surely that would be enough for both men. I think. This could be a cool setting for a story, Ollie. Some people will be instantly put off by the fact that it's not an elegant chronicle of a middle-class family struggling with the fallout of a terrible incident in their past that has been covered up. But fuck those guys. You don't need those readers. But what you do need to do is take pride in your craft. Your job is no easier than the job of the literary fiction writer and no less a responsibility. Making people happy, stimulating their imaginations. These are wondrous, kind services to perform. So research your world. Spend time building it. Ask yourself, what would be surprising here? What wouldn't the reader expect? Give it some history and depth. You don't have to include all that in your story, but having the rough sketches to draw upon will make your world feel real and lush and immersive. And that's it. If you'd like to send me your work and Lord knows I desperately need it, please go to timclairpoet.co.uk and click the link to our submission guide in the show notes. I'm a writer. My first novel is called The Honours. It's out now. I'd sure appreciate it if you read it and let me know what you think. Please spread the word about Death of a Thousand Cuts, the podcast, if you're finding it helpful. Chances are other writers will find it helpful too. You could help someone out of a sticky situation. Do it. Share. Proselytise. Although do bear in mind by helping other writers you'll be increasing the competition you face thanks for listening until next time you don't understand me you're not my real dad